J-Cut, and this is the K-Cut. I'm Rachel, and I am fond of classic cinema, silent movies, and lost film, and I am also a writer for Films Fatale. James here. I'm a content creator. I produce and release music under the Alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Fur Not to Say podcast. I've written a few articles for Films Fatale, and uh, my main expertise on the show is no-budget cinema. I am Andreas. I love art house cinema, international cinema, and everything in between. I uh, created Films Fatale, and I also write for it. And this is another edition of our cinematic smorgasbord uh, because of, um, you know, just a personal decision and, uh, you know, based on our findings. I think we're going to start releasing these episodes at the end of the month as opposed to the start. I feel like maybe it's more inviting, kind of like a book club where you start the month with what you're going to read. And at the end of the month, you report your findings. I think it kind of makes a little bit more sense. So um, that's why we're doing it a little bit later. I mean, it wasn't uh, an actual decision to do that, but just because, uh, you know, life happens and we as with everything you can blame the oscars <laughs> well let's just blame the oscars absolutely um that's enough stuff to watch uh for a lot of us so um you know it kind of got in the way of our cinematic smorgasbord proceedings but because we find ourselves at the end of the month maybe we will just do that from now on but uh if none of this makes any sense allow me to do my usual housekeeping of actually explaining what a cinematic smorgasbord is so each month um as you can tell our co-hosts all have different tastes in film but we also have a lot of uh, crossover appeal as well uh, what we do is we recommend a film that uh one of the other co-hosts has never seen before and they have to watch it and report their findings furthermore we all watch a film that none of us have seen before, which is a very difficult task. Um, it's hard to find a film that at least all three of us have not seen. Typically, one of us has seen it. So for our collective pick, which you will hear in the uh, latter half of this episode, is Amy Simitz's She Dies Tomorrow. It is a, a neon release um, an indie film. I guess we'll see how we all feel about that. So uh, for now, we're going to get into our individual picks. So. Um, you know, I recommended something to James, Rachel recommended something to me, and et cetera, et cetera. So, um, who wants to report their findings first? I can go. Sure. Sure. All righty. So, Andreas uh, gave me my pick for the month, and he gave me the John Cassavetes film, A Woman Under the Influence. And what did you think? I thought it was really good. I didn't know what to expect because I've been meaning to get into Cassavetes for a while. I just haven't. But yeah, it's it's a fairly basic story. It's about a wife and a mother who kind of just sort of, I don't want to say like cracks under the pressure, just everyday life and kind of in relation to like somewhat obvious mental health issues and just kind of how her antics and the way she acts affects her family. I mean, partway through her husband kind of commits her to a facility to get better for six months. But yeah, you just kind of see, you know, this woman just like all she goes through, it's like, you know, she's, she's trying her best, but it just doesn't quite work out. And I, I kind of like this story being that this film was released in the seventies. Cause in the seventies, we got a lot of films that kind of dealt with male existential crises and we didn't really get, you, you know, you never really see the woman's perspective, but it's actually really interesting about this because this film was actually written for Gina Rollins, who plays the lead by her husband, who is John Cassavetes, the writer and director. He wrote it 
at her request because she originally started as a play and he she wanted to do a story about a woman who dealing with these kinds of issues and then she realized she didn't want to do that as a play and have to play that kind of character multiple times a week for however long so they adapted it for a film instead but yeah i I think it's it's a film you don't have to overthink it's kind of you're just just peering into the slice of life of this family who's going through this kind of drama and you just see how it unfolds and yeah i don't know it's yeah, it's just a really good film. I recommend it to anybody who kind of likes films of this era or just kind of more dramatic type films. I felt like because you have such an affinity for indie cinema that it was a no-brainer that one day you had to get familiar with the works of John Cassavetes, who is considered like the uh, the godfather of indie cinema as we know it. Um, not particularly this film, but uh, even earlier works of his. I'm thinking of like Shadows, for instance. Um, but something like this is still so stripped down and... Yeah, you could tell that it was like, you know, its foundations come from, you know, how stage narratives are presented. But um, it doesn't, I mean, it feels like a play, but it doesn't feel like a play at the same time. I think because of how brilliantly Gina Rollins and Peter Falk work the camera, um, you kind of forget the set that they're on, the uh, setting as it is, you know, the historical and uh, actual physical setting. Uh, I personally find myself just getting lost in these performances to the point that I forget that it's like two and a half hours. I forget everything that precedes it. Um, It's just an incredible drama with, uh, I mean, Peter Falk is fantastic, but I would uh, consider Gina Rowland's one of the greatest performances of all time in this film. Yeah. Overall, I just, I thought it was a really good film. I think, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, the kind of indie low budget thing did appeal to me because I think because he was kind of like a trailblazer in that space. You know, he was getting financing elsewhere for his own films from like, you know, collaborators and other investors as opposed to like playing in the Hollywood system. He'd also, you know, was a, a kind of at the forefront of the practice of four walling where he was renting out theaters and showing films himself. It's so interesting because he has this reputation and his wife has his rep- reputation as one of the greatest thespians of our time. Um, and I'm not saying this is like a knock or anything, but it's just also interesting that his son is for, you know, was for a time period, at least uh, one of the go-to Hollywood directors, uh, you know, working on behind films like Alpha Dog, The Notebook, uh, Denzel Washington's uh, John Q. Um not saying that it's like, you know, again, like a, like a bad thing necessarily, but it's just fascinating what came, you know, cause you have these two parents, which kind of stood for something else. But at the end of the day, they also, in their own way, were always champions of people, artists being able to tell their own story. And that, that clearly was the case with their children as well. So um, the fact that they opened these doors, not just for, acting for indie cinema but also just i guess maybe just for their family as well you gotta love gotta love the cassavetes family (laughs) well overall it's a thumbs up for me on that one fantastic are you interested in checking out more cassavetes after this oh yeah i mean i I definitely will it's it's like it's kind of the door has been kicked open so brilliant okay um yeah he'd absolutely be your type james Speaking of types, uh, Rachel, now that we know what James was presented, uh, what did he recommend to you? 
He recommended to me Dream, which is a South Korean film by Kim Ki-duk, who is a controversial figure with good reason. Um, but he is also a very well-regarded filmmaker, and his films do deserve some discussion. So this is a film, and it's about a guy who's experiencing really weird dreams, and they're kind of like super real, and they're it's having effects, and there's a woman who is also experiencing dreams and they kind of connect. And so the whole film is kind of this weird demented love story that exists in sort of liminal spaces between dreams and reality. And yeah, I think it's a really interesting concept that didn't quite stick the landing. I found that the, it tried with some neat experimental stuff. Ultimately I think the pacing brought it down a bit, but it was a really cool idea and the acting is very strong. The cinematography is beautiful. Um, and the sort of eerie mood it creates is perfect. But ultimately, I just think it had a lot of great parts that didn't hang perfectly. Um, it, uh, one interesting choice I think they made is that the lead actor is Japanese and that he speaks Japanese for most of the film. And it kind of further highlights his isolation. I thought that was pretty cool. It's interesting that you bring up the pacing because it's only an hour and a half, but I found the exact same qualm with the film where... Um, kind of a doldrum. It's weird. It's it's such an interesting idea, but it almost feels like... Um, and this is something that like I found with Alex Garland's Men as well. Like, fantastic idea, great aesthetics, lovely ideas, but um, it, it almost felt like uh, like a proposal for a better film. Or like a like a portfolio for something that like you know I love the separate parts, but the whole felt like I was wanting more. Exactly. Um, I felt I found myself zoning out at certain bits and had to go back and watch parts of it. So I don't know. I'd say it's worth checking out, but it's not the best of his work. I actually haven't seen any of the rest of his work, but just from what I've heard of the rest of his stuff. But yeah, I'm I'm glad to have gotten to explore it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I didn't know if it was going to be like a hit with anybody, but yeah, I, I just think there's a lot of really cool ideas. I think not only just the part where it's like he's Japanese and speaks Japanese, but uh, so so part of the story is actually the woman isn't just experiencing dreams. She's acting out these dreams that he's mm-hmm. having. Mm-hmm. That's true. And then, uh, but but the really interesting is not, it's not just the isolation, but they both have very isolated jobs. Like they both work from home. So it's like these two people who are very isolated have this weird connection and um yeah it's i always I, i've always appreciated stuff like this that kind of blurs these lines with reality i mean we see it all the time but it's like you know only certain people can pull it off and while this one isn't perfect i think it just kind of opens the door up it's at the least it attempted to be something interesting and not something done for pragmatic reasons exactly and i like when films take a risk even when it doesn't always land yeah, so it was it was worth it. Yeah, to your point, Rachel, uh, Kim Ki Duk, uh, I, I'll just flat out say a terrible person, but a fantastic filmmaker. And uh, there are absolutely other films of his that I do recommend as well. Uh, if you listeners at home checked in or checked out this film um, and you felt like you liked it or you loved it, maybe you wanted more for different reasons, his filmography's got a lot of hidden surprises that are uh, worthy of being dug up for sure. I feel like the film that I got, uh, which was recommended to me by you, Rachel, was uh, complete, 
completely different from what you would get with Kimki Duck entirely. Um, this is uh, Rachel's uh, upteenth attempt at getting me to like a Stanley Kramer film. Or uh, like's not the right word. Let's say love. Love a Stanley Kramer film. And that's uh, Inherit the Wind. I've got to be honest, before I got into this, I was like... I've seen a few Stanley Kramer things. I I'm like fine with them. I'm not like in love with anything that he's ever done. Um, well, uh, color me stupid because uh, I actually I think this is like not just like the best Stanley Kramer thing I've seen so far, but it's like one of the best picks you've ever given me, Rachel. So really, I did not expect you to like it that much. I thought you'd have your usual Stanley Kramer reaction. I usually find his stuff very heavy handed and very um, black and white. And I won't lie, I don't think Inherit the Wind is perfect. Like, there's a bit of Mickey Mousing with the, the score. Uh, Mickey Mousing, by the way, is when the uh, the actual musical patterns or the harmonies will, will actually, or the melodies will actually uh, reenact what's happening on stage. So if somebody's, like, tiptoeing, the score will be, like, do 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 which is, like, very oh, cartoony. Yeah, yeah, and Stanley Kramer, Stanley Kramer films do that a lot, and this is, this is no different. But, you know, outside of, like, minor gripes like that um there's just so much to to love about this film again i usually find this film's a little overlong um heavy-handed but this one kind of sits in the gray area so um and i i i honestly felt like okay maybe i didn't want to go on for another half an hour but i feel like it was the perfect length so this film is based on an actual trial where um, I mean, this is like a fabricated version of it, but an actual trial where uh, somebody in like a, a religious town was uh, put to trial because he's a teacher who was teaching um, scientific uh, Darwinism in school. In the 20s. In the 20s. Point. I think that's actually yeah, fair point. That's actually very important to note. And I will tell you one thing, though. I have always thought that you could do a modern production and dress everyone up like today and replace the radios with TVs and not change a word and it would still work. Unfortunately, I think it would actually work better now than it would have when this film came out in 1960, which is actually kind of frightening. Um, and what I love is that, and easily it could have been like pro-religion or pro-science, but um, Kramer and company kind of sit in the middle. So you have um, you have uh, a lawyer who poses as like somebody who's not anti-religious or anything, but you have the lawyer who's uh, fighting for, uh, for, for the teacher played by Spencer Tracy, who uh, delivers one of his best performances I think I've ever seen, which is saying a lot. Um, you have a religious figure being the opposition uh, played by Frederick March, who is also one of the greatest actors of all time and seeing him like after the, the golden age of Hollywood, um, you know, you know, well after his prime and still just being fantastic is great. But um, I'm going to have to give my favorite performance to, uh, honestly, at this point, he's one of my favorites, to Gene Kelly, who's not yes. singing. He's not like a chipper guy. He's actually quite a jerk in this. And, and Stanley Kramer does that a lot. Like he did that in Inherit the w- or in uh, On the Beach with Fred Astaire. He did that with Judy Garland in Judgment Nuremberg. That's true. It's like getting these uh, comedy musical icons to do some really heavy lifting. And I don't know, like between this and like, even though it's a musical, but like the Girls of uh, Girls of Rochford by, um, oh my God, why am I forgetting his name? Uh, filmmaker. Demi. Yes, uh, Jacques Demi, thank you. Um, 
uh, where uh, Gene Kelly was was fluent in French for that film. Um, it's nice to see Gene Kelly and like just what he was capable of because he kind of gets pigeonholed as like this one note type of person when really he could do like everything. Yeah. So thumbs up. Yeah, I absolutely love that this film never takes like one side or the other. Like it sits in the middle that um, the general argument that the film makes is that we shouldn't be chastising or ridiculing people for not agreeing with us. And um, I felt like it was riveting. I feel like I'm not an expert in the subject, but like in terms of like courtroom dramas, um, it's one hell of an entry in that in that sort of genre. And if you're a fan of that, I I highly recommend it. Actually, it's yeah okay. So the uh, the um, the curse has been broken. I don't find Stanley Kramer mediocre anymore. I guess. <laughs> perfect, perfect. There you go. Otherwise, we're gonna hop to um, the collective pick. Yep. Uh, again, uh, in case you couldn't get any any more different, um, here we have uh, Amy Simitz's uh, "She Dies Tomorrow," a psychological thriller indie film. Uh, it's got quite an interesting cast, and um, we jump to uh, modern contemporary filmmaking for this one, twenty twenty. So very uh, modern, yeah. Alrighty, what did we think? I thought it was a really interesting film. Yeah, it wasn't a masterpiece, but I think the the timing of this movie was almost too perfect because it came out during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And do do we share the premise? Oh yeah, yeah, we can share the premise. I mean, it's okay. really there's really nothing to spoil with it. That's true. So basically, um a couple of people get this sort of premonition or conviction that they're going to die very soon the next day. And um this is they don't really go into what's causing it that much, but it's contagious. So uh if you're around other people, you can potentially spread this sort of conviction to everyone else um it's it reminded me of when uh they give out symptoms of a heart attack one of the symptoms is a sense of impending doom it was sort of like that a bit oh that's interesting i i, I never knew that, that was a symptom but yeah it's because it, it starts with one person and then it kind of trails off like this person interacts with another person and they get the sense and then it ends up spreading to more people and, and it just kind of made me think of a lot of the stuff that happened during the pandemic where people just had this like, and not even just, it wasn't necessarily people catching the virus. It was all the other stuff. It was like buying up all the toilet paper because of the sense like, Oh, was it the end of the world or just any, anything else that was going on in media at the time? It was just a sense of paranoia. And going over their lives, reviewing things that have happened to them or that they've done and going over what they could have done differently. I know a lot of people did that during the pandemic. Yeah, it's almost like, uh, you know, apparently when creating this film, um, Amy Simitz was, or Amy Simitz was trying to replicate kind of the mass hysteria that comes from like anxiety and anxiety induced attacks where um, somebody's panic and paranoia starts to make others around them feel uneasy. Um, but again, like when it comes to the pandemic and just like when this was released and everything, it's uh, very fitting for a whole plethora of other reasons. Oh, yeah. I also, because um, I'm a big fan of Amy Simons ever since I saw her Upstream in Upstream Color. Color yeah. Because it's like, that was such a great performance. But then I, when I started digging into other work she did, 
I didn't realize like she was actually part of the um, kind of close knit group that was associated with like the Mumblecore tag. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of those filmmakers, like they were all like she was friends with all of them and it worked a lot of, with a lot of them in a, like some capacity or another. And then when she like you know because she actually has um another film she released before this called Sun Don't Shine, and I saw that and I was like, oh, this is really interesting because with a lot of the stuff she gets, you wouldn't have guessed like how artsy she's gonna get with her own stuff. Like like this film is like. It has a very it has a very basic premise, but it's like she went like full art house with it because that's the kind of stuff she's influenced by and, and, and into. But yeah, it's just really interesting to see something that parallels real life in a way that it almost feels too real. Like, you know, obviously none of us think we're just have the sense we're going to die the next day. But th- that feeling of dread or something's wrong that you can't explain. And also, there's also a couple moments where. You don't know if you're in reality. I don't know if I don't know if you caught that. Like there's certain points like there's points where the main character or the kind of main character she like wakes up. And I always question, like, is this a dream or is this like some sort of other reality she's in? Also, can filmmakers please stop using Mozart's lacrimosa so much? I, I appreciate her use of it, but it got to be a bit much. Oh yeah. <laughs> but I mean like uh, in- indie films are gonna indie film, right? You know, if it's cheaper to to use the music of a, of a composer who's been gone for hundreds of years. I mean, you're going to find that a lot, unfortunately. Yeah. Overall, I thought it was interesting. I just think it was just the time it came out. It was just perfect timing. I just think it had an impact on me. It was like, wow, there's something about this that resonates unintentionally. Cause this was made before the pandemic. I totally know what you mean though. Yeah. So it was a good choice. And it was short. Mm-hmm. Nice and sure. It, 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 it didn't overstay its welcome. Keep in mind, we were watching this during Oscar season, so we were watching sometimes multiple three-hour films per day. Yeah, yeah. I, I did all but two of the entries for the Oscars in six weeks. Oh, my God. I still don't know how. <laughs> and, and 30 in a row. Well. Jeez. Well, uh, congratulations to, to all of us. <laughs> I mean, I, I think some, some listeners might think we're psychotic, but hey, I mean. We... Hey, it was easier this year than the past couple of years. And we have an entire subreddit of people doing the same thing. Yes, the Oscars oh, Death yeah. Race. Yeah, shout out the Oscars Death Race subreddit. Alrighty, shall we recommend each other the next month's picks? Gosh, we're like little kids on Christmas Day. <laughs> it, it is like Christmas. Well, uh, before we do that, uh, we should probably let new time listeners know where they can find us. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K Cut. And uh, normally, I would tell you the recommendations for Smorgasbord right now, but we're just about to get into that. Yeah. So uh, what we're going to do for the month of April is. Uh, Determine what each of us is going to watch. Furthermore, I believe the collective pick is up to Rachel here uh, this month. That's so right. We're gonna Say find your out. Prayers. <laughs> no, I mean if it was if, if it was either James or me, I think we would be a little bit more worried. I, I feel like Rachel picks are a lot nicer to us all. <laughs> um, who wants to find out what they're watching first individually? What's mine? Um, have you ever seen the Granddaddy of All Science Fiction, Metropolis? No. Okay, oh. that, that's it. I can't. I can't do better than that ever. All right. I, I remember this being mentioned. The, the possibility that I would get recommended. Yes. Well, it's going to happen, and I. It's three hours long. It's a silent film from Germany, and it. It is essential to every film buff. Like you can't get around it. All right. Awesome. I'm excited. Oh, 
you don't know what you're in for. It's it's amazing. Yeah, and um, it's public domain, so it's very easily available as well. Oh, awesome. And I would also recommend looking into the history of preservation, both you, James, and anybody listening, because it is worth it. Absolutely. For any listeners at home, sometimes some of our selections have to get a little obscure, and sometimes they're a real pain in the butt to find. So uh, this is a nice... Um, the, the nice opposite of that, uh, Metropolis available everywhere. <laughs> so, Alrighty, what am I going to watch? All right, so I had a pick planned out because I had like pretty much the whole year planned out, but I decided I want to do something different with that pick, so I'm going to assign you. And this is a film I brought up once before in an episode, probably last year or something, maybe. It was forever since I talked about it, but I'm assigning you the exploitation horror art house film Ganja and Hess. Ah, yes. I've uh, always wanted to see this, actually. Um, I've brought it up on the site multiple times, but that's not because I've actually like seen it. It's just because I've been aware of it. And I know its significance. And I do know that Spike Lee had his, his own version of the film, which, um, forget the name of it, but... Uh, it's called The Sweet Blood of Jesus. There we go. That one. Um, but for what I know, uh, nothing could touch this original, this uh, very idiosyncratic film. So, Oh, it's very much an Andreas film. Oh yeah, you're gonna love it. <laughs> I am excited. Alrighty, for for you, Rachel, um, you're gonna you probably maybe already know what it is. Um, in a previous episode, uh, there was a film that I was like actually shocked that you had never seen. Um, and now you're going to, I guess. I'm surprised because you typically watch Oscar nominees, and this one year, uh, back in 2007, as a hint, was uh. Very, very successful at the Oscars. Many nominations. Oh, well, now I'm getting it. Yep. Uh, people thought it was going to win, possibly win Best Picture, but a loss to No Country for Old Men. But it did win Best Actor. And that's uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. Uh, and, Ooh. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, get ready for some of the best acting you'll ever see, not just from Daniel Day-Lewis, but like Paul Dano as well, who was robbed of a nomination. Oh, yeah. That's his thing, getting robbed of nominations. Oh, yeah. Get ready for... Uh, is it a hot take to say this? I don't know. Um, quite possibly the best Stanley Kubrick film that Kubrick never made. Ooh. Okay. I'm intrigued now. There Will Be Blood is a masterpiece. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to it, and it's high time. Okay. So we've all got our individuals. Yes. Um, so I will head on to the collective. When I said say your prayers, I meant it, because we are going to be watching... Oh God, a 1970s film starring John Denver, directed by Carl Reiner, about a, a mild-mannered, ordinary guy who is chosen to be the next messenger of God. And uh, it was apparently a huge critical and commercial success in the 70s, but I've barely ever heard of it. My dad, who I should probably disclose here, is a clergyman, watched it, and... Um, it's like one of his favorite films, but I've never seen more than the occasional glance walking through the living room. I'm very curious to see how John Denver is, and I want to know why this movie was so popular and why we never talk about it. You talk about occasional glances. I've never even heard of this. I, yeah. I haven't either. I don't, didn't even know John Denver acted. <laughs> yes, yes, and I don't think he even sings in this. As far as I know, it's not a musical. I'm surprised this isn't uh, directed by Stanley Kramer. I see what I did there. Uh, so, uh, and it's got some other interesting folks in this as well. So George Burns, uh, who I think plays the lead. Uh, Terry Garr, who's always a welcome entry. Um, Ralph Bellamy, I think. 
Paul Sorvino. Paul Sorvino. Jeez. Okay. Like, yeah, this is this is going to be pretty interesting. And neither of you have ever heard of this, and I only did because my dad is a older and b clergy. I mean, I've got to be honest. I'm not as familiar with the films of Carl Reiner as I probably should be outside of like the jerk. Is that the only one I've seen? It might be. So, uh, yeah, I guess that was a great place to start. Uh, one of the very few filmmakers that I should have seen everything by and I haven't. Uh, so here we go. When he passed in 2020. Yep. Yeah. He lived to be about 98, I think. 98. Wow. And Mel Brooks is still kicking. Let's not jinx that. I, I want that man to hit 150, because if anybody deserves to, it's that guy. <laughs> him and Norman Lear can share a toast. Oh, yeah, Norman Lear and him. Jesus. Like, that would be incredible. And, like, the – um, yeah, they would still be, like, actually working at, like, 150 as well. That's the brilliant part. <laughs> and at least in Canada, you can rent Oh God pretty easily. True. True. Well, that – all Canada represent, right? You know, it's uh, – Alrighty, so we've got um, quite a few terrific films to watch for the month of April. We've got, oh God, uh, we've got uh, There Will Be Blood. Actually, it sounds like a sentence. Oh God, There Will Be Blood. Um, we've also got, why am I blanking? We just went over these. I have Metropolis. Oh God, Metropolis, There Will Be Blood, and... Ganjin Hess. Ganjin, Ganjin Hess. Hess. Yeah, there we go. So Ganjin Hess. Oh God, there will be blood and Metropolis. Once again, you couldn't get more different than that. We've got stuff from the new millennium, from the turn of the silent era into talking pictures. We even got a film that just is a Carl Reiner classic that none of us have seen, but we also have black exploitation. We've got a little bit of everything for the month of April. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Cinematic Smorgasbord. That was uh, the K-Cut. Now we're going into the L-Cut. Mm-hmm.